being a fashion model and moving into business, you get judged. You are treated differently. And back then, especially with the way you look. My daughter said, what is that? And I said, oh, it's nothing. It's just a cookie that I'm making. So I handed it to her. She took a bite and she took another bite. And then that was it. Then about four months later in Style Magazine, and in that magazine was the choice of your day. And it was Madonna saying, what was your pick of the day? Like a drink or a restaurant, whatever it was. And she told the story about me. And that's what kicked off the brand. When you're an entrepreneur, you work. You work every day, all day. I think what drove me was to prove myself, to prove to myself and to others that I could do it. And this is, I don't even know if I should be saying this, but. I had to contemplate that. How much do I want to work? I could be off traveling or helping other entrepreneurs or teaching or writing a book, but something called me to this. So it worked out really well. And how much did you sell the brand for? A couple hundred million. Well, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting, Austin. I didn't build my business for the money. I built my business because I loved what I did. Hi, my name's Lizanne Falsetto. I am in Los Angeles, California, and I've been in the protein industry for over 30 years. The name of my business is Betterland Foods, and we are committed to the creation of products that are better for you without creating any trade-offs with great taste. We are focused on two categories, dairy and candy, and we are breaking into a very new category in the grocery market. And is there any reason that you're doing those two categories? Yes. The reason why we have both categories is because I started in the nutrition bar arena and when Perfect Day, who is our protein supplier, asked me to come back out of retirement into this business, they wanted me to do nutrition bars. And I didn't want to go back into the same old thing that I had started. And so I said, why don't we look at candy? Candy needs a redo. It hasn't been redone for over 75 years. The ingredients are dirty. The product is not as good for you as it can be. And so I am going in and recreating 10 of the top candy bars to have double the protein, half the sugar, and better for you with fair trade chocolate. And we're using the Perfect Day Protein, which is a cow-free dairy protein. So what is fair trade chocolate? Well, by simply buying fair trade products and having a fair trade chocolate logo, we're actually telling retailers and brands that you can care about the people that make our chocolate. So it is really going all the way down to the cocoa farmers and their families to deserve to live healthy, happy, sustainable lives where they have the freedom to choose their own path. Well, what made you want to start Betterland Foods? You said you're called out of retirement. So was it like a company beforehand and you came and started a new one or what exactly happened with that? You know, it's interesting because I never thought I'd go back into the food industry. I really didn't. When I sold Think Thin, I thought I was going to take some time, maybe work, mentor, sit on some boards travel, get to know my kids again, all those things. And what I started doing through COVID is paying attention to the alternative protein space. Protein's something that I started back in 1993. I was the first protein bar on the market, and I'm very interested in the commodity market. I started watching what Perfect Day Protein was doing with their proteins by removing the cow. 
and cloning through a fermentation process. And I thought it was very interesting. And then I started looking at what's happening in today's world with the planet. And I have a small farm where I live. I have avocados. I started to realize that water, temperature, and climate control is an issue. I didn't really get my hands in the soil as much as I did through COVID. So the combination of both started getting my wheels turning. And I filled out a form online to Perfect Day. And within 12 hours, they had called me and said, we want to talk to you. I said, sure. And I had a lot of time during COVID, as we all did, and got on the phone and started talking to them about what they're doing. And it was really interesting to think that there could be an opportunity to launch products that would change the way people think about food. And I think today there is a bit of a shift. People are more educated. They're reading labels. They're paying attention to building their immune system. COVID kind of woke people up that they have to take care of themselves. And so through that combination of about three months, I asked them to send me the protein. I went into the kitchen, started playing with it, and realized that it was a beautiful protein. It has the exact same amount of taste and flavor as whey casein, but it doesn't have the casein and it doesn't have the cap. And so that's why I decided to get back into it. I thought this could be a legacy of leaving, you know, when you leave the planet, sometimes you kind of think, what do you want to leave behind? It wasn't the journey of Think Thin. It really is the journey of better land, creating a food revolution. And that's my goal. We said it wasn't the journey of Think Thin. So was that the first protein bar that you made? And you said the first one on the market? Yes. So Think Thin was created in 1993. And interesting enough, that business I just fell into. I wanted to travel with portable food that had protein in it. And through my modeling years, I was in the fashion industry for about 15 years. I traveled the world and I had a lot of jet lag. I couldn't find food that I could eat that would give me energy and sustain my appetite. And I started baking cookies my grandmother's recipes in the kitchen. There was a peanut butter cookie and a brownie. And I started tearing apart the ingredients and adding protein, pulling out sugar. And I came up with this cookie and I slabbed it out and started cutting it and putting it in plastic bags. And I would go to the modeling shows and people would say, hey, give me one of those snacks. Do you have one of them? And about a month into it, I was cooking for hours at night, bringing the product to the set or wherever I was working. And I started realizing that there was nothing on the market that was portable, that you could carry in your purse or bag, that you could eat that would fill you up, that had 20 grams of protein, which is the amount your body can eat in a meal, and gluten-free. I was the first gluten-free product that had gluten-free on the wrapper and sugar-free. That's how I came into creating Think Thin. So it was really from a personal need state that got me into this category of nutrition bars. How about Betterland Foods today? How long have you been in business and can you give us some metrics? Sure. So Betterland Foods has been in business a year and a half. It has been in the development stages of formulas. So we are in two categories, as I mentioned, candy bar, and we have three candy bars that we're launching. We have a Snicker knockoff. We have a Milky Way and we have a Reese's peanut butter. We will be launching the three of them August. The product is called Woo, W-O-O. -O, so you can go to woobar.com and check it out. 
And through the process of playing with this protein, I reached out to an employee that I had at Think Thin. His name is Bill Picar, and he's an incredible formulator, R&D tech, came from a large business after we sold Think Thin. He went his way, I went mine. And I called him up and said, Bill, I think we can do something with this protein. Take a look at it. And he came back and said, I think we can make a milk out of this protein. And we started looking at dairy. And, you know, dairy is just having a struggle all the way through climate, animal, the water issues. So we went to work and we put together three SKUs. We have a whole, we have a creamy, and we have a low fat. We'll be launching those September 1st, direct to consumer. So you'll be able to buy it amazon.com or betterlandmilk.com. And it is the first cow-free dairy milk in the world. So we're very excited about that. We'll see. Next year is all D to C. And then January 2023, we will be launching at retail. And you said next year's all B to C and then... D to C. D to C, direct to consumer. Okay, gotcha. So I was making sure I understood that. And then when you're talking about retail, you're talking about any convenience stores or grocery stores? Is there one in particular that you imagine? Yeah, I could give you a few. We're going after like-minded retailers, Sprouts, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Costco, people that are really conscious of what's happening in today's world, all the way through the sustainable side. So are they aware of the carbon imprint? Are they taking care of the way that the farmers, the resources of the ingredients and where they're coming from. And so we'll be launching with Sprouts and we presented to Trader Joe's and we're very excited about building the tribe first through direct to consumer and then taking the product and going to retail. And at that point, we will have a following. When you're building a new category, which is really what we're doing, it's important that you have a following before you go to retail. And I think retail today is still a little bit stumped from COVID. They're trying to make up margin. They're trying to get products in. There's a huge commodity issue, as we all know. You want to go out and buy something. It takes months now to get it delivered. And so the timing of this product and the change of the way people are thinking about their food and where their food source is coming from is happening now. I believe that at Think Then in 1993, I was probably 10 years before my time. I had to educate people on why protein was good for you. Why stay away from gluten? Gluten is glue. It slows you down. It's an allergen. I couldn't eat gluten. It made me sick. It made my stomach bloat. And as a model, that's the last thing you want. And so bringing new industry products takes time, education. It's important that you build your tribe. And so that's what we're doing this next coming year. 2023, January, it'll be at retail. So are you the model who's going to be eating these chocolate bars? <laughs> no more a model. <laughs> that's been a long time ago. But I do take care of myself and I do eat <laughs> the bars. I ate a Think Thin bar every single day. I have had a Woo bar every single day. It's a nice snack. You get your balanced protein. You don't have to feel guilty about eating it. And it helps sustain your appetite. It's everything that you want in a snack. So is it just you and a co-founder of the company right now? No, we have quite a team. We have Bill Picard, who's the president, and we have six extremely 
talented marketing and brand strategists on our team. One of the things that I wanted to do if I was going to come out of retirement was I was going to work with people that are the best in the industry and that I like. I kind of have a no asshole rule when it comes to business. You know, we work more than we play. And so you want to like who you work with. That's number one. And so I hand chose people and every single one that I went to said, I'm in. This is exactly what I stand for. Now, these are industry professionals. We've all been in the business for 30 years plus, collectively, probably 200 years of work together in the industry. So I think we all see this incredible trend of the next wave of what's happening with our food and where it's coming from. And also, there's 870 million people that are hungry worldwide. People should not be cold and they shouldn't be hungry. Those are the two things that we have to pay attention to. And where dairy is going today is they're not able to maintain the, first of all, shelf life. We have a 12-month shelf life. Dairy has a six-day shelf life. We have no lactose, no cholesterol. We have equal protein. And we're able to ship our product worldwide without being refrigerated. That's a big deal. It's almond milk, oat milk. You can also ship, but once you open it, their shelf life is much different than ours. And so y'all don't have any sales yet though, right? We do. We have sales for the Woo Bar because we launched it early just to get consumer feedback. But at the moment, no, we're not selling until we're 100% ready to launch, which will be in August. Okay. So you said, I believe Bill is the president, right? Correct. So what's your role day to day? Because I know you said you're like a founder CEO as well. And I'm just always interested in how people are able to divvy this up and how it works for your company. Yeah, it's a good question because I am back to many bowls in the air. I'm doing everything. It's a startup. So I'm strategizing. I'm working on the marketing concepts, consumer behavior, looking at industry knowledge, analyzing retailers and who would be the right one for us, reaching out to contacts that have been my contacts, fundraising. We're right now doing a friends and family round. So there's fundraising. I'm pretty much doing everything all the way down to responding to consumers if I see that there's a need to do that. And one thing that I wrote down is basically you said your plan before just launching the other products is try to build a following for direct to consumer, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Do you already have a following or because I'm sure there's a lot of people that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if someone said that specifically on the podcast before, but it makes tons of sense. If you've got some type of following, that's why influencers, if they start building a brand, it's pretty easy for them to be successful. So just curious how you're able to do it. And if you already have a following. We're starting to build a following. We are starting to understand which demographic we need to go out to speak to. And what's interesting about Betterland Foods is that there's so many good things to talk about. That could be a problem because it kind of bounces all over the wall. I think you have to pick three pillars. Our pillars are better for you, performance, taste. It has to taste good and it has to perform. People don't want to give up performance or taste. And it's better for the climate and the planet. And so when it comes to those three, we're staying laser focused on that demographic. Also, I think it's important to note that when you are launching a food brand in a new category, precision fermentation is the next wave of what's happening in the commodity market. It's important that you understand and maneuver that conversation so that you're not confusing consumers. 
You're bringing them along as you learn. And I really like that concept. It's not arrogant. It's inclusive. It brings people in to have a voice and give feedback. And in today's world with social media and the immediate gratification of ordering something from Amazon and having it drop from the sky an hour later onto your doorstep, that's what the demand is from consumers. And so we are taking the knowledge that we have today and utilizing that to communicate and then understand who our tribe is. And then from that knowledge, we go to the retailers that that tribe is shopping at. So it's almost like drawing a map to get to where you need to go by being day-to-day, yet still very strategic, looking up and forward. You know, there's a Harvard study that talks about entrepreneurs that are tactical and entrepreneurs that are strategic. And there's two sides of that. When I was at Think Thin, I was tactical. I had my head down. I was charging through it. I was trying to make sure everything was getting done, warehouse logistics, R&D, ordering, human resource, are the employees happy? Are the retailers happy? I now am much more strategic. It's head up, looking at what are the trends? What's the next one, three year, five year? And then coming down and looking at the tactical side of what has to get done day to day, month to month to build the milestones of your company. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn a science-based approach to the art of persuasion, selling and motivating yourself from Daniel Pink, or improve your negotiation skills from Chris Voss. Or you can even learn how to be a disruptive entrepreneur from Richard Branson with over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Per the suggestion of my wife, I'm actually taking a non-business masterclass right now. It's with Emily Morse, and she's teaching me how to be a better lover. I've been taking meticulous notes, so we'll see if Emily's tips come in handy tonight. Anyhow, I highly recommend you check out any of these 150 classes available on Masterclass. Get unlimited access to every one of those classes. And as a listener to this very podcast, you can get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash millionaire right now. That's masterclass.com slash millionaire for 15% off masterclass. As a business leader, you and your time are pulled in a lot of different directions. Think of tasks you hate doing. Maybe it's inbox management, maybe it's managing your calendar, or maybe it's project follow-up. Delegating those tasks that you hate could save you up to 15 hours per week. That way you can do the things that you love. It's time to focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Belay intentionally pairs clients with virtual assistants, accounting services, and more. Belay can help you reclaim those 15 hours every week. Great leaders don't do anything alone. Find the support you need to delegate those details with Belay. Belay has been helping business leaders with staffing solutions for over a decade. And you can find that out by checking out episode 84 of our podcast, where I interviewed the founder, Brian Miles. Get the right help right now with a virtual assistant from Belay. Belay is offering an exclusive VIP offer to all of our podcast listeners. So just text STORY to 55123 to claim your VIP offer. Again, that's story, 
S-T-O-R-Y, two, five, five, one, two, three. Basically, I was wondering specifically what you are doing to try to build a following, but I guess you say you're a little bit more strategic, but do you have any examples? Yeah, it's all social media. We're reaching out. So there will be a social media campaign that actually I just reviewed yesterday with the team. And there will be a campaign that starts in August. It will be all the channels, TikTok, Instagram. We're looking at Facebook and we're looking at LinkedIn blogs, influencers. We're also looking at some celebrity endorsements and putting those together in the right communication path to the right demographic and learning as we go. The great thing about direct-to-consumer is it is a platform to make decisions quickly. And I always say, if you're going to fail, fail quick. As an entrepreneur, figure it out. Don't keep going and thinking, oh, it'll be better tomorrow. If you fail, make a left or make a right. And that that is something I learned at Think Then. That's what we're going to do. We're going to launch the campaign September 1st, We're going to watch the consumer's reaction to the campaign, and we will pivot where we need to and adjust when necessary. You were saying basically you've been doing the company for a little over a year. And when you started, again, was Bill the president, the guy who asked you to come on, and that's kind of how y'all started? Or did they already start before that? No, I had started six months before I brought anybody on on my own, I was really contemplating, do I want to do this? This is a big, audacious goal. And when you're an entrepreneur, you work. You work every day, all day. And I remember when I sold my business and the next day I went up and sat on my daughter's bed and she looked at me and she goes, what are you doing here? And I looked at her and I said, I just want to talk. I want to talk. She goes, God, mom, you know, you should be down working. That's what you do. And you know, there's sacrifices too, right? You have to understand how much time and energy you want to put into a brand if you're going to start up a business and really understand that this is a long process. And I had to contemplate that. How much do I want to work? You know, I could be off traveling or helping other entrepreneurs or teaching or writing a book, but something called me to this. The combination of this deja vu, all of a sudden I started in protein, falling into Think Thin really falling into it naturally. And then Betterland being strategic and something that I contemplated, I understood how to go to market with it, building the team, knowing which members of the team I needed out the gate. It was one of those deja vu moments where it was protein whey casing from a cow, and now it's protein cow free of a brand that makes a difference in the world. And I made the decision to do it. When you made the decision, did you have any idea of how much it would cost? Because I was curious, yeah, how much have you done in funding or did you personally have to put in to get started? Yeah, I'm personally funding it right now. And I plan on funding it as much as I can. That is, you invest in yourself is probably the best investment because you know that you believe in who you are and also it pushes you harder. It drives you more forward into your goals more responsibility on your shoulders, which I think is important. And did I know how much? I had an idea that this was not going to be cheap. When you're going into a new category at retail, you're not just educating yourself at the beginning. You're educating the retailer, the buyers, you're educating the consumers. Every single person that's coming in trying to understand it has an opinion. So you have media that can come in and stir it up. For instance, 
soy protein. There was this huge outrage of media back in 2001 that said that soy protein causes breast cancer. There's absolutely no documentation that really points to that fact. But today, human acknowledgement of that is prominent. People think that it's not good for you. So you have to be careful in the way that you approach the market and when the media or influencers come into play giving an opinion, it could stir the ship left or right. And so it's a real micromanaged conversation that has to happen. So how much have you put in the company so far? A lot. How much is a lot? Well, a couple million. Because you sold your other company for pretty well. That's why you're retired and you had enough of that money in the bank to put that into Betterland Foods? You know, it's interesting, Austin. I didn't build my business for the money. I built my business because I loved what I did. I love being in the food industry and learning. You know, I wanted to be a chef. That's how I started Think Thin. I went to the kitchen and you know, Perfect Day sends me the protein. And where do I go? I go back to the kitchen. I was raised in the kitchen from a big Italian family and it all evolved on its own. It's really interesting. When I look back and think about how the last 35 years has come into play for me, it was kind of written already. But that doesn't tell me how you're able to have that much money to put into Betterland Foods. Well, bottom line is, is that I sold my business. Think then. Think then and took some time off and was looking at where to invest, how to invest. COVID hit. <laughs> what do you do? You don't want to invest your money in the stock market. I invest in myself. And I hope to be able to really turn this business into something that can help and grow even with people like Bill Gates. This would be an absolutely perfect product for his foundation that he's doing for the water worldwide initiative that he has. So I'm looking at this to be able to give back also and have a philanthropic arm, but don't know what that is yet. I know it will be helping the hungry worldwide. That's a real passion of mine. And I think that funnels back to just loving food and wanting to share food. It's my form of love for people, serving food, cooking food, growing food. I like it. It makes me happy. And so to put my money where my mouth is, I think is an important part of this journey. Literally, since you're doing a protein bar, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, why don't we reel it back to your modeling days and when you came out from there and started your own first protein bar, is that a good place to start? Yeah, sure. I mean, grew up in Seattle, Washington, left at 18, never wanted to go back. Seattle rained a lot when I was young. I think it still does. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's a little bit better though. My mother and two sisters are still there and I have a niece and nephew there and I go back and visit and it's fun when you get to visit. But Seattle was a place my grandfather, my mother's father, Carleone, traveled from Campobasso, Italy through New York and came over at a young age and loved Seattle, Capitol Hill area and went and got my grandma, brought her over and they started their life there. And they were very proud Italians. They were so proud that they didn't want us to learn or speak anything but English in the house. But I was raised in the kitchen with my grandmother. My grandfather had the most incredible garden. He smelled like tomato vine. And I loved when I was young, hanging on grandma's leg and watching her cook. She could make anything look delicious, even cow's brain. And I learned a lot. I learned that food is love. Growing food is it makes you feel good. 
you're out picking your own lettuce and tomatoes and the smells of food remind me so much of my childhood. And then Sundays, we did what typical Italians do. We sat at the table with 20, 25 relatives and cousins and ate and grandma cooked and everything was homemade. Grandpa was a butcher, so we had salamis and beautiful cheeses that were all made. I had my first glass of wine at seven that tasted like vinegar, (laughs) but grandpa tried to make wine but wasn't very good at it. So that history was important for me. Went to a private school, was raised Catholic, and played basketball. Really loved the sport. My father coached my brother's team, and so as a young girl, I would tag along and they would say, hey, Lizanne, one of the guys didn't show up. So I trained my career with a lot of my brother's teams and that my dad coached and then went into high school and thought, oh, maybe I'll go to college and play basketball. But school wasn't my gig. It wasn't my gig. I didn't really love school. I didn't learn the way they were teaching. I learned from doing and it was hard for me in school. I had a hard time with it except for basketball. It was my saving grace. And then my dad and I, you know, he used to always say to me, he was an optometrist and he used to always say, you have to dream and dream big. Anything you want to do, you can do. And I said, you know, dad, from an early age, I was tall and thin and I wanted to be a model. You know, maybe that's what every little girl wants, but that's what I wanted. And I loved fashion. I would cut out every magazine and put it up on my wall. I remember being interviewed for the school paper and they said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I want to be a fashion model. I want to travel the world and experience food and smells and language. And so lucky for me, I got picked up by an agent in Tokyo, in Seattle. I went to the Seattle Models Guild. It was a school that I spent a couple years on Saturdays through high school. And I learned how to walk and take photos and do makeup. And it was just a small modeling school. And there was an agent that came in from Tokyo and she saw me walk down the hall and she said, who's that? And they said, that's Lizanne. And I want to meet with her. And I was lucky enough to get a 60-day contract as soon as I graduated to go to Tokyo. And I did it. And I could have gone and played college basketball if I wanted to. And I chose not to. I didn't like school, as I said before. And so the journey for me was, it was spectacular. It was the best years of any young adult life you could have. I was able to travel. I learned about different languages and smells of food. And I'd go in and look at what the farmer's markets were like. Spent a lot of time in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Asia, Bali, Singapore. And then started going to Europe, spending time in Paris, Milan, went back to New York, and I kind of lived the fantasy life for a while. My nickname was Mother Earth because I was the one that would always cook for all the models. And the rule with the agencies was if you didn't have an oven, Lizanne wouldn't come. And so they would always have an oven for me. And in order to give me an oven, because usually models had such a small flat, They would want me to watch the younger girls, make sure they ate at night, sat down, had a little bit of a family unit. And that's what I did. And I did it for a long time. And it came back in 1993. So you were in Tokyo that whole time? Well, Tokyo, Paris, Australia, every 60 days I went somewhere new. But Tokyo, I ended up getting a campaign for Laana Kyushu. It's an airlines. And I was the first gaijin, American girl, 
to wear a kimono in a huge campaign. And it was such an honor. I'm sure it was Japanese in a past life because everything about Japan made me happy. The sentos, the food, the noise, the incredible smells. And I ended up having a flat there on and off for four years. So Tokyo was kind of the base of where I would live. And then from there, I would go and travel because every 60 days on a work visa, you had to renew your visa. You couldn't stay. So I'd have to go somewhere and it would usually be Hong Kong or Taiwan or, you know, somewhere where I could renew my visa and do a little bit of work while I was there. Did you make a lot of money doing that or no? A ton of money. Oh, wow. I really have no clue. Oh, it was crazy money. Crazy money. I used to carry cash in my boot, you know, because you could only have $10,000. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm just going to wire it and pay the taxes. Who cares? But I'll give you a for instance. I did a curtain commercial. I get on the set and I have this little dust thing in my hand and I have to walk over to the curtain and dust the curtain. No more than two hour shoot, $15,000. It was crazy money. And this is when the yen was really thriving. And when modeling was about the models and the design of the clothes and the look of the woman. Today, it's much different. Modeling is more about influencers or, you know, the shift because of the opportunity of so many people that you can choose from now. It was much different when I was in it. I really enjoyed it and respected it. It took good care of myself. Was I around a lot of drugs? Was there partying? Of course. There was nightclubs that you could go to. They would let you in for free. You could eat and drink for free. You had free clothes, free makeup. But I was lucky that I had a good base, I think, from my childhood where I kept my head on straight, at least most of the time. I made some mistakes, but you know, I really enjoyed it. And I think it was my college. It was the way I learned by doing and smelling and tasting. I used to go to the Chinese herbal bends and sit there and watch these incredible families come in and ask for this deer's head, you know, ear that would be dried or sea fish from the sea. And they would put it into these brown, beautiful wraps. And it was for soups that they would make. And I learned so much from the different languages of and the different cultures of how they used food and the functional benefits of herbs and vitamins to heal themselves. And I think that really made an impression on me. So when you were doing that, you're saying that's made an impression on you while you were modeling when you're figuring that out? Yeah. So when you're modeling too, I mean, I guess you're saving up your money in your account. Are you, are you not a big spender either? Because you're saying you could obviously get free food and drinks if you're going out, but I guess you're just making so much money that that's enough money that whenever you're planned on retiring, that you're like, hey, I'll start my own first business. You know, I grew up in a very humble home. I was lucky. I had everything I wanted. If I needed new tennis shoes, I had new tennis shoes. If I needed new clothes for school, but we were a family of four and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. So we had a, a very humble beginning. Even today, I don't buy a lot. I don't, it's not my gig to go out and spend money that way. I wanted to save money. It made me happy to see that I was putting money in the bank. Also, my parents helped me. You know, I would talk to them. I want to send money home. Where do I put it? What do I do? So I had some guidance there that helped me, but it really was entrenched to me early that if money comes to you, it's best that it's saved and you purchase something that you desire, need, and 
I guess, deserve if you feel you do, and then you buy it. But when you're traveling, like what I was traveling, I didn't have much that I needed. You know, I needed a wardrobe, which was pretty easy to do because a lot of times they'd give you the free clothes. And I didn't have to pay rent, came out of my contract. And so I saved money. When was the year that you transitioned from modeling to, I guess, starting your first company, Think Then? The transition was when I decided I couldn't travel like that anymore. I just was tired. It was 15 years in and I was traveling with pots and pans in my bag. And I was like, God, I want to have a home. I want to have my own kitchen. And I came back in 1993. And at that time, I was getting married to a, another model that was from San Francisco that I met in Tokyo. And we traveled the world together the last seven years of my career. And we decided to come to LA because it was in the middle of San Francisco and Seattle. So we came to LA and I said, okay, I'll still model in LA, but I don't want to travel as much. I still left for quarterly certain collections, but I at least had a base for the first time in my life outside of growing up at my family home. And when did you have kids? Very late in life. My first child was the business and I had my first child at 36. I have two, a daughter and a son. They're both adults, one's in college and one's out working and very amazing children. I feel so blessed to have both of them in my life. And I had them late. I had my first baby was Think Then and I got pregnant. I think it was 36. I had my baby at 37 and then I had my second one in my 40s. So I started late with that. Are you glad you did? I don't know. I guess so. It is what it is, right? I guess I look back and think everything happened for a reason. And who I am today morphed through the journey of what I went through. I don't regret anything in my past. I've learned a lot and I've made a lot of mistakes. And I think as an entrepreneur, you make a lot of mistakes. But if you're able to learn from them, and evolve and not do it again. Or if you do try not to do it again, you know, you keep moving forward. So what was the official year that you kicked off Think Then? And can you just tell us about like how much money you needed to get started and how that originated? So when I came back in 1993, I uh, didn't realize the traffic in LA. I just didn't. I had no idea. I had not come to LA. My, you know, I didn't travel through the States as a child. I was very based in Seattle. It was expensive for the family to travel. And so I didn't know about traffic to the magnitude that it was here in Los Angeles. And I would get in the car and I'd have to drive for three hours and four hours to San Diego and then come back and work in Beverly Hills. And it was exhausting. I had a little Honda Accord. I think I put 175,000 miles on it in a year. So that's how much I drove. And it just fatigued me out. I was like, I got to do something else. I got to figure this out. And in 1994, I wanted to take my grandmother's recipes. And I thought, I need, I can be a chef. That would be fun for me. I like to be in the kitchen. And that's when I started going through the cookie recipes and, you know, knowing that I was going to be in the car and I didn't want to eat McDonald's or all the fast food places. And back then, going through an airport, you couldn't even buy an apple or a banana. There was no healthy food. There was a hamburger, a hot dog, chips, french fries, all garbage. And so I wouldn't eat because that was food that I didn't like. It didn't make me feel good. And so 
when I started going through those recipes, that's when I really started playing with ingredients and proteins. And so Think Thin came about in 1995. At that point, I was carrying bars in little plastic bags, just like cut out bars that you make. And I was at this one fashion show and I was sitting in the makeup chair. And back then is when they would bring in celebrities that would be part of the show, whether they'd open up with a song or they'd be involved in one of the end gowns for the designer, whatever it was. And Madonna was at this event and we were sitting in the makeup chair and she was way at the end. And one of the girls said, hey, Lizanne, throw me one of those bars. I said, okay. So I grabbed it and I threw it over. She grabbed it. Madonna said, what is that? I said, oh, it's nothing. It's just a cookie that I'm making. And she said, no, let me see. Throw it, you know, throw me one. So I handed it to her. She didn't say anything, nothing. Not this is good. This is delicious. Nothing. She took a bite and she took another bite. And then that was it. Then about four months later in Style Magazine, which was People's Magazine's sister had launched. And in that magazine was the choice of your day. And it was Madonna saying, what was your pick of the day? Like, a drink or a restaurant, whatever it was. And she told the story about me and trying this product. And I had the name Think back then. It was T-H-I-N-K explanation mark, which today, interesting enough, after I sold the brand, they went back to that name. Same exact trademark that I scribbled and made on a piece of paper, which is so funny. And it gave me $38,000 of credit card orders and that's what kicked off the brand. When I moved back, I ended up buying a house and spent a lot of money on the house that I bought. I bought a beautiful home and we had a beautiful view, but it wasn't probably the smartest way to spend the money right out the gate. But that's what I invested a lot of my money in. And that house was the empty. I had no furniture. Every single dime that I made from that point forward went into the company. And I built the business grassroots, you know, I'd go into Barnes and Noble and start going through magazines and looking at editors and their names and writing it down and then dialing for dollars. I used to call it dialing for dollars where you call and say, hi, it's Lizanne with Think Thin. Can I send you product? Can I send you bars? And made some headway with some editors after that article came out with Madonna. So she really helped with that process. Well, what drove you? I mean, I know you said you put up a lot of money into the house. I imagine you still had to work. You didn't make enough from modeling to retire at that point in age. But was there, other than making that healthy snack kind of for yourself and feeling better, was there anything else like to, you know, make you want to do those calls? Because I think sometimes people dream about doing that, but then they actually don't put in the work. I don't know why I was a warrior. I think maybe I was number three in the family and I was different than my family. I used to always say to my mom, God, you didn't have sex with the mailman, did you? Why am I so different than my family? I was out trying to catch bees in the field compared to my brother and sister who were and are still very brilliant in school. They liked to learn that way. I didn't. I was just different. So I think what drove me was to prove myself, to prove to myself and to others that I could do it. Back then, it was one of those things where you didn't go to college you didn't go to college. You know, it was a big deal. And I was like, no, I didn't go to college. I traveled the world and I learned my book study was from travel study. So I think there was judgment. Also, being a fashion model and moving into business, you get judged. 
you are treated differently. And back then, especially with the way you look. And I had to be very careful about presenting to women, wearing no makeup, making sure I was dressed down, wearing big bulky glasses. I really knew my audience and I paid attention to that. So I think it was, I wanted to prove myself that I could do it. You had a husband at that point in time, right? That you had been married and had had children yet, but was he all on board for you doing it? He would say, you're really smart. You're a great negotiator. You can deal with the legal. You can deal with this. He empowered me through positive encouragement. That was the best part of my marriage was building my confidence that I could come from a set and move into negotiating price point or understanding retail, being able to build customer service and be the best customer service person I could to everybody calling, understanding logistics. It was a process for me. And one thing that I learned as a young entrepreneur was if I did not know how to do it, find the best consultant to come in and give you Harvard in a day. I always say it's Harvard education in a day. And I would bring him in and say, teach me everything about logistics teach me everything about retail and the strategy of retail. And I learned from that process and that built my confidence to be able to move forward. So I guess I did go to school. It was just a different kind. Oh, I love that sound. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Shopify is more than a store. Connect with your customers, drive sales, manage day-to-day. Shopify instantly lets you accept all major payment methods. Shopify has thousands of integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to accounting to advanced chatbots and beyond. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. Discover endless possibility. Shopify is tirelessly reinventing tools of growth where millions of businesses helping them succeed every day. Discover inspiration. Shopify believes in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and commerce can be a force for good. Discover your possible. Shopify unlocks the opportunity of your business to more people every day. Every 28 seconds, an entrepreneur like you makes their first sale on Shopify. Go to shopify.com millionaire, all lowercase, to start your free trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash millionaire right now. Shopify.com slash millionaire. First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need Issue, the easiest way to make your creative ideas come to life and share everywhere you want to be seen. Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital content from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks and brochures and more. There's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative in an easy-to-view way on every device. Make it once and distribute it everywhere without reformatting. 
your content is already optimized for engagement and ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Not only that, but Issue helps creators, marketers, designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. And guess what? You can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give a more customized experience. Get started with Issue today for free. Or if you sign up for a premium account, you'll get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use code millionaire. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use promo code millionaire at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use code millionaire. Yeah, you just had that, unfortunately, stigma then where everyone felt like they had to go to college. Whereas today, I think now people are realizing like prices are so out of control. I think it's way less of a stigma. So I definitely see that motivating you or could motivate me if people don't think I'm smart enough, right? Like that I'm a model that I didn't go to college. Okay, let's see what I can do, right? So it sounded like you had that chip on your shoulder. I didn't want to fail. And I think I learned how to work hard. Both my parents worked hard. They were exhausted at night. My dad had an hour journey to work and an hour back. He'd come home. Mom always had beautiful meals on the table. We'd sit down and eat. They'd help with homework. It was a very exhausting process for them, watching my mom take care of us, driving us all over, taking care of the house. It was a great way to learn how to work hard and why working hard brings huge gratification to self-worth. Basically, think then, was it 20 years till you sold it? Yeah, 20 years. Exactly. So what are some early things that maybe we could learn that you can remember either ups or downs? And we'll just kind of take it over the 20-year timeline till you eventually sold. There's a few milestones that are interesting. I think the first milestone was in 2001 when Dr. Atkins and low carb was the rage. I didn't even realize that Think at that point was a natural low-carb bar. But if you think about it, it had 20 grams of protein, zero grams sugar, and gluten-free. Atkins was all about the net effect of carb. So high protein, no carb, burn, going to ketosis. And at one point, Whole Foods said to me, do you realize that you're the only natural low-carb bar on the market? And when I launched my product, I wanted to be in the natural arena. And back then, Whole Foods probably only had 20 stores. As they were growing and building, they were known as kind of the hippie, granola, you know, sage, Birkenstock store. But God, I love those stores. I'd go through those stores and learn so much. And they were small and unique and they had interesting products. And it was all about health. So I decided that I was going to look at the opportunity to sell my company in 2002. And at that point, I researched relocating to Nevada, Reno, Nevada, for tax ramifications. But really, it was also for logistical issues. I was shipping to Walmart, and I had 22 different DCs that I had to ship product to. And Reno, Nevada was in the perfect central area. I could get cheap warehouse. I would be able to have all the products shipped there and shipped to the DCs, and then I would get the huge tax break. So 
I went about relocating to Nevada, kept my house in Los Angeles, bought a house in Nevada, and completely took the whole company to Nevada. How many people were in the company? At that point, there were 18. I had to let some people go and, of course, hire people that lived in Nevada, but I was able to keep the accounting office intact in a small area here in Los Angeles. And I traveled back and forth under the minimum days that I could with two small kids. I actually think that was the demise of my marriage. I became obsessed with work and loved it and saw the growth of the energy that I was putting into it and probably didn't work as hard as I could have on the relationship. He did not like Nevada. He loved to surf. He loved the ocean. And we just grew apart. And then I hired a banker to come in and represent me and went to market. The company at that point was at $32 million and went through the process, learned so much through the due diligence process, which we can touch on a little bit. But I then had an offer from Hershey's for $358 million and could not believe that the price was through the roof. Through the negotiations and the due diligence, it became an offer that went down to 75 million. Then it went to 58 million. And that was the number that we decided on. They would pick me up in their plane and fly me to the R&D labs. I'd spent a year on due diligence with them. And it was very difficult to run a business and run a due diligence process at the same time. But we did it. And seven days before the money was going to drop in, I think it was 2005 in October, and I got a call from the banker and he said, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. I said, oh no, I just knew. He said, unfortunately, they're pulling out because Dr. Atkins had slipped and died in New York and there was lawsuits. And I said, lawsuits about what? And he said, there were lawsuits that the low carb net effect of carb was not approved by the FDA. So the deal fell through and I went through a bit of a depression for two, three weeks and thought, oh my God, my marriage. Then my dad died after that happened. And I ended up going through a separation, had to move everything back to Los Angeles and completely rebuild my business. So what did I learn? I learned that I took my eye off the trends. I should have known that net effective carb wasn't approved by the FDA. And I didn't know that. I didn't do the deep dive into the ingredient decks to understand that. That's the number one thing. If you're ever going to ride a wave of a trend, make sure that it's approved through the regulatory process. And I also learned that I had to put some sort of balance in my life so that I could not just work 18 hours a day, but I needed to spend some time on myself and my children and my family. Well, I don't think I'd fault you for the FDA thing. I think we all know, especially now through vaccines and whatnot, it's just, just in general, I don't know that they would ever approve any type of diet fad, if you call it, because maybe Dr. Atkins just didn't pay them off enough, you know? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I just... I know that the industry at that time blew up. Right. Yeah, I could definitely see that because we all know there's trends in dieting and whatnot. I think the one now is like intermittent fasting right before that. You know, there's always different ones. So I'd say more the wave than the FDA disapproving of it. 
Yeah, I agree. I also think, though, that if you're going to call out a trend on your wrapper, know what you're calling out. Understand the depth of it and make sure that if you're going to ride that trend, that it's not a short trend. It's a long-term trend. I learned a lot from that, though. I came back and I diversified the brand. I had to let go of all the employees. I actually moved into the same small office that I started in after I left the house office. And I rebuilt again. So you went down to how small and what year was this? Oh, my God. It was a small thousand square foot building in 2006. From your height of like, and you were the only employee? Oh, 10,000 square foot warehouse with, I had 22 employees at that time. Okay. But you downgraded from how, like how many did you have before you said you had to downgrade? 22 employees to, I kept four. So it was a pretty big deal. Is that just because Atkins, the fad died right after that, after Mr. I guess Dr. Atkins slipped and fell? What happened is, is it took the industry into a tailspin and anything that said low carb on it was removed from the shelf. And the buyers were, if you Google it, it was probably the biggest food blow up in the world. It was hundreds of millions of dollars of product that got removed from the shelves. And it was a big deal. Thank goodness the buyers worked with me. They gave me six months to redo my wrappers, my boxes, to reformulate so that I didn't have the net effect of carb and I wasn't writing the low carb trend that became the negative in the industry. And they brought me back onto the shelf, but sales stopped. I had a ton of inventory I had to dump. I donated it but I had to get rid of it. My financials completely flipped and I had to reinvent myself. It was the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned so much from that experience that it made me a better human being and it made me a better CEO. Right. The main thing, like you're saying, to start diversifying, right? But when it came to halt, was that because of the consumers or is it because the people that were stocking it just even though you said they gave you six months to reformulate or repackage and maybe put high protein instead of low carb or whatever, did everyone just stop buying Atkins or was it the retailers that stopped buying or the consumers? Because I don't remember this. Both. Oh, yeah. You got to Google it and look at it. It's just such an interesting time in the food world where when you have so many people trying to come into a trend, you have mislabeling from smaller businesses, even larger businesses, if there's no regulatory of how you're explaining a process of something that impacts your human health to lose weight, your low glycemic index, it affected diabetes and sugar that goes up and down. If you don't have the proper path of communication as a united front in this category, but yet it's owning 60% of retail, you got an issue. And what happened is, is the retailers got scared. The commodity market crap. I mean, low carb just blew up. Atkins, I think, had to file and they ended up selling to somebody else. There were lawsuits through the roof on Dr. Atkins and the business and everybody got scared. So they just stopped. And that's why if I look at where I'm at today in the process of educating in a new category about precision fermentation, that's why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it is because of the way I learned what a new category and industry could do if done wrong. And if too many people come in 
to a category with a different voice, there becomes mass confusion. And with that becomes legalities, labeling issues, not properly being able to communicate what's in your product. And it just was a perfect storm. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, now we can kind of see how, and like you just alluded to, while you're taking the approach you are now, and I guess being cautious and making sure you cross all the T's and dot all the I's. But so the year you said we're about only halfway through your company's history, I believe, when you went from 22 to four, and then you said you were single at this point in time that you said you got out of a relationship. Was that still from your divorce or was that a different relationship? No, that was the marriage. I took a couple of years off, didn't date, focused on the kids. And, you know, I had lost my dad. That was tough and really just put my head back in the game. And that's when I decided to focus 100% on protein, not low carb, not low glycemic index, but protein. And my whole head and communication was about how do I communicate why protein is so important in a day for human health. And I stayed laser focused on that. And that's when Think Thin became Think Thin. I wanted people to understand that if you think thin, you A, you're consciously aware of what you're putting in your body, but you're stripping away all the junk. And so I went in and reformulated, streamed down the brand, and started looking at other categories like oatmeal. I wanted to move into a high-protein oatmeal, which is what we did. I wanted to go into smoothie mixes, which is what we did, and stayed very focused on one message not many messages. And that built the brand into uh, 2012. And at that point, when I realized that people knew what protein was and how much they needed in a day, and it took years to understand that because I used to do so many consumer studies where I would sit behind the glass wall and listen to people talk about how much protein they need, when they eat it, why they eat it. Nobody got it. Nobody knew how important it was. And so we kept trying to educate and educate. And in 2012 is when I realized it's time. People know about protein. So I went out and got a VC to partner with me. And at that point I said, and I learned this through the mistakes I made, I need to find a like-minded group, VC group that can come in and understand what I'm trying to do, which is I wanted to roll the business up and sell it. And I wanted to sell it to somebody that would keep it alive and not kill it like a lot of brands that get bought by CPGs. And the next thing you know, they're dead. Balance Bar is a perfect example of that. So I partnered with TSG and our goal was to bring on top of the line executives And in 2014, we decided to put the company up. The timing was perfect. And we went through the due diligence process. We brought in a stand-in CEO so that I could focus only on due diligence and become the historian of the company. I also learned from 2005 to 2012 to start keeping very accurate records, something that I think all entrepreneurs should think about is document everything. If you go through a recall, document it and put it just like you would a chapter in a book, document it and put it into a file so that when you do come up to the process of selling, you have the facts all there. 
If you don't, you have to go back and relive it years later. And it's so much work. In 2006, I started doing that and it made the process so much easier. I also started doing audits, financial audits every year, making sure that my financials were sealed and stamped of approval. That helped. And, you know, this VC group really guided and helped the process. I never thought that it would be Glambia who would buy the brand. Never thought. I thought for sure it would be a Kraft or a Hershey's or a General Mills. And they were also at the table putting bids in. But it was Glambia, the largest protein supplier in the world, who ended up buying the company. And it made perfect sense because they sell the protein to me. Their cogs can immediately go down. They had international distribution, so their ACV could go up. And they've done really well with the brand so far. So it worked out really well. And how much did you sell the brand for? A couple hundred million. Well, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But you know, you don't do it for the money. I think when you're able to receive in, and I truly believe this, it's to be able to give back. And whether you give that back through building another brand that makes a difference, or you donate money, or you help younger entrepreneurs, whatever that path is, I do truly believe that when you sell a company, it's because the universe is saying, now you need to give it back. And so I try to be as philanthropic as I can. I started a group called the Holistic Success Method, and I had about 200 young female entrepreneurs that I would bring in other female CEOs that would mentor them and help them and teach them the mistakes they made. And I love that. That was so fun. It's so fun being around that young blood that is eager and wants to learn. And I did that for a bit. And you did that, you're saying after you sold Think Thin. Yeah, that's what I focused on. You know, what was hard for me was when I sold and I woke up the next day, you would think you'd be dancing on the table and, you know, ah, this is so fun. I went into a major funk. I didn't feel like I had the self-worth anymore because I wasn't doing what I was doing for 20 years every day, figuring out a problem, trying to solve it, working routine, right? And that's another thing I would say is prep yourself before you sell a business. Get ready for the emotional turmoil that it brings to your life and understand that it's like letting your baby go. Yeah, before we move on and I guess kind of what you did in between there, do you mind if I ask you a few questions I'd written down as you were talking about Think Then? No. Well, the first one, how much protein do people need? 20 grams of protein in a meal is ideal. Size, height, and weight and depending on how much you burn, which is why the Fitbits and everything are so incredible to wear and understand. I eat about 80 grams of protein. I'm 5'10 and I weigh 135. I'm eating more protein because I'm older and I want to keep my bones and I want to stay strong as I age. So 80 grams of protein or more. People were thinking five grams a day I need. They had no clue. It's just so interesting through that process of awareness, education. And of course, through social media, you're able to get the message out quicker. So it's a platform that can educate a much quicker than back in the old days when you had to do old school education. And then how big was your company when you sold it? Like, I guess, employees or sales or anything that give us an idea of that? $120 million. 
58 employees. And I had one office in Culver City. I had consolidated all the offices to one building. And then you're talking about kind of like the demise of your marriage when you went to Nevada. When that was happening, I'm just curious again, because unfortunately that happens a lot with entrepreneurs. How did your routine switch afterwards? Or do you have any suggestions on that? Taking the moment and time every day to spend time with your mate, not talk about business, do other things, focus on that individual ask them questions, care about what they're doing. I probably had, you know, my mind on so many other things. I think we grew apart. And I do believe relationships excel your growth. And I think that relationship really excelled my growth into being a better partner for the next relationship. When you live apart, like we did under stressful times, you're always on edge. So how do you balance the emotion of being uptight, meditate, work out, eat right, do all the proper intake that you need for you individually? I started meditating a lot. That helped. I meditate every night before I go to sleep. I try to take a 15-minute break and lay down and close my eyes and do a quick meditation and breath work. That helps me, center me. I didn't do that before. I didn't do things like that. When I had my children and they were really small, I could not wait to get to the office in the morning. I'd wake up at five. And so what I do, I built a place for the kids to have the corporate office. And they came with me when I worked. I would have competitions in the warehouse on the forklifts. You know, I didn't take moments, I think, that are very important to focus on what was important to my mate. And at that point, I think I had blinders on and I didn't see it. And I'm not saying I'm totally to blame. I think it takes two to tangle. But I think he was like not feeling like he had a wife. Would you literally wake up at 5 a.m. all the time and work? Or Because I know you said your work routine, because I like just hearing what your normal routine was kind of before and after or any suggestions on that. Because I mean, when people say, you know, I work 18 hours or trying to be successful, sometimes we'll talk about it, but then you know, I'm just curious what your day day was and like kind of what worked best for you. Yeah. So back then compared to now is completely different. With Think Then, I woke up five o'clock. Of course, I had young babies, so I didn't really sleep well at night. Anyways, I did have help. I had a woman that is still a family friend that traveled with me with the kids. I brought my children with me to buyer's appointments and The buyers were all supportive of that. In fact, they liked it, that my young children would come with me. I'd fly to Publix in Florida or stop and shop in New York, whatever it was, and I would bring my kids with me. I don't think that was probably the best route. You know, when you're on the go, constantly going, there's not a stable home moment. And I just was obsessed with the business everything about it. It's all I thought about. How do I do this? How do I break down that wall? What do I do now? And now I have given myself the six o'clock I wake up, I work out every day. I make sure I eat my oatmeal with protein. I have a really good diet of what I like to eat. I take a walk with my dog around the block around two o'clock. So I'm taking moments for me to catch my breath. 
huge difference in the way that you think about your business when you're not so obsessed about it. I think taking moments to calm yourself down and make good decisions instead of having 20 balls in the air, you have five, so you make a better decision. It's like what people say, if you multitask, you're not doing everything well. I am now very focused on three tasks a day, even though I have a lot of balls in the air because it's a startup, but I make sure that the three big nuggets are the things I focus on. If I have time for the other items that are important, I'll do them. Then I put my computer down. Now, I didn't do it last night or the night before because I'm about ready to do a road trip and a lot of work happening, but I am taking moments and I think it's very important to do that. Versus before you just worked through the day on your computer all day? All day. I gave birth with going through, and this is, I don't even know if I should be saying this, but I had great pregnancies. First off, never slowed me down. My first birth, as I was going through the labor pains, I was on my computer working. And then after I gave birth, my mother came and stayed and I was breastfeeding and oh, it was just so much. I say, mom, we're going to go to the office. And I remember one time she walked in my office, I was breastfeeding my daughter and I was on the phone with Walmart and she looked at me and just shook her head. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, it's all good. It's no big deal. I'm on the phone. I'm utilizing the time. And you look at that and you say, should I just hung the phone up and focused on feeding my baby. But every moment was a moment that I wanted to utilize. And maybe that's what it takes to sell a business. I don't know. You know, I don't know. This time I'll know. I'll know if taking time for myself will help me be a better leader and a better CEO and making wiser decisions that are bigger than numerous decisions during the day. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought about that. Say if you were just getting five hours of sleep a night, what happens if I actually got eight hours and felt like way more productive, even though I quote unquote worked less hours, you know? So it's always like a balance of, I think, hustling so much that you might have, you know, worse sleep or maybe you didn't work out and you don't feel as good. I think it is a delicate balance to try to figure that out that, you know, again, the 18 hour workdays, I think everyone understands over long term can't be good. Hopefully that taking the time, like you said, even if you just take a walk for 15 minutes. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture. I actually have it on my background on the desktop. It's just a brain activity after a 20-minute walk versus zero-minute walk. And it's like, it just shows how lit up your brain is versus if you just stayed stagnant for four hours straight and then went another four hours without taking a break. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think you got to just figure out what works best for you. I think COVID had a lot of positives, respectfully, for the damage that it impacted us with. I really do think that we're learning about, A, you can work from home and be as efficient as in an office, and you can incorporate your business and your personal life through the day to make yourself happy in what you want to do. There's times I'll go out to the garden and water the garden in the middle of the day. I used to do that too all the time, just get sun. So you get sun on you and then I just do that. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I guess there's one other thing that I hadn't touched on throughout your story with Think Then and obviously with what you're doing today was finding the manufacturers because that's a whole different thing from when you said you initially started in 
throwing out granola bars to Madonna and your other models, right? How you're able to find that, because that seems like the key to your success of trying to do that, figure out who they are, try different batches. And again, I don't even know how much money it would be, particularly you told me at the end that you got a partner to help sell it. But can you just walk me through that, like how you're able to do that and what worked or any mistakes you might have made with finding manufacturers and doing that? It's interesting because manufacturing back in 1993, when Nutrition Bar started, you know, there was Power Bar, there was Balance Bar and Cliff, and then there was Think. They put us in the candy aisle. This is where I was saying deja vu comes into play in my life. They put me into the candy section because there wasn't a Nutrition Bar set, and we were making our product on candy equipment. So there was not even nutrition bar equipment. And at that time, the biggest headache was finding line time to go from small production to large production. And the amount of energy that I had to put in to persuading people to pull balance bar off the line, which was doing extremely well, the 40-30-30 diet product, to give me one day a week was just a lot of negotiation and begging. Today, there is manufacturing where, interesting enough, I'm making candy on nutrition bar equipment. So that's a deja vu, 30 years later, completely different way of thinking about it. The expansion of being able to get line time and set up with a manufacturer is critical before you even think about going to market. Because if you don't have product and you're supposed to ship and you're not on the shelf, you're just not doing yourself justice. The way that I approached it was I built a relationship with the owners. I always paid on time. I was always very transparent with ingredients, what I wanted to do. And as the brand scales so does their production. And so when I started, we had pricing that was not transparent pricing. I believe in manufacturing of food products that transparent pricing is fair for both parties and it alleviates all the margin that could go into either's pocket. And so when you're going to manufacturing, large manufacturing, Looking at negotiating transparent pricing, you know how much money I'm making and I know how much money you're making. And our goal together is to both make more money. So you become more partners than business associates in a way. That worked much better for me. So basically, if it costs you a dollar to make the bar and you plan it on selling it at $2, you let them know that you're planning on selling it at $2, but I need to know how much you're going to make. Can you just tell me the difference a little bit? Yeah. So say I'm making a product for 55 cents and their cost to make the product is 40 cents. So we're at a deficit of under a dollar, but we're at 95 cents. At that point, the ingredients come into play. What are the costs of the ingredients? And then you add those in. When you're talking ingredients, those are the things that you can negotiate with the manufacturer together. The larger amounts that you can purchase, but plug and pull when needed, 
how do you think about buying out two years of whatever the ingredient is, nuts in the commodity market, and then pulling as needed so that you're saving 10 cents, which is five cents on both sides. It helps the negotiation power, the energy to even try to negotiate. And I understand that my manufacturer has to make 40 cents to break even. People aren't just going to break even. They have to make profit. So what's the amount of profit that they need as I grow the brand? And that's the mathematical equation that we would look at. But the larger outside ingredient contracts, when we negotiated them together, not, hey, manufacturer, go out and negotiate the peanut contract and let me know what they say. They then pack in margin to that. So transparent pricing, you don't have any hidden margin and it makes for a better partnership. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think you just have to run through a couple more examples. Like for me personally to see it on paper, right? But before you're basically saying that you didn't know what their margin was and then that they would... They hid margin. Right. Yeah, yeah. they hid margin. Versus they tell you now. But I guess for them, what's the benefit of them telling you? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, out the gate, it wouldn't happen that way. For me, it's my 30 years of experience. So yeah, you figured out over time how, what their margin is, right? So even if they didn't tell you, you kind of have an idea. You know, you can roll in and you understand the math and they know that you know. So they're not able to pull a five cent margin pull without you knowing and without me calling them on it. Makes sense. How about even the first one when you didn't know anything? It's great. And thank you for sharing this information. I think it helps a lot for anyone who's listening. Like these are things that I don't hear on other business podcasts when I listen. But like even when you walked in the first couple what are the mistakes that maybe you made when trying to find a manufacturer? Or again, you said it was different, obviously, back then. But even in today's world, using today's world, what would you do if you're starting off and you didn't know what you know today? Well, if you went from small manufacturing to large, a few things to pay attention to. The history, all of the records going back to see if there had been any recalls of any sort, what certifications, how often are they audited? How do you look at the audited paperwork and what is the rate of their audit? Is it 92%? Is it 95%? You can look at a trend year over year of how well they took care of their facility. I mean, look at the baby issue right now with the baby food, with Abbott going through a lawsuit or right now, I think a few people got sick because they had moisture on the line. Doing due diligence and understanding year over year, has it been the same CEO that's running the business? What's the reputation of that person? Reaching out to other people that you know are running product there. A lot of times they don't tell you that, but when you walk the facility, you can see who's there because there's pallets, hundreds of thousands of pallets at these manufacturers. So you've got to do your work. You've got to dig into the paperwork, look at the certifications, look at what type of people you're dealing with. How long have they been in business? What has happened through COVID and how did they manage that? That's a really good base to start right now. Did they close or not? How many outbreaks of COVID did they have with their employees? Those are decisions that you can tell if they manage their business with integrity. And then 
understanding the percentage of line time that they'll give you for the growth of your brand. When you look at your projected numbers, one, two, three year, or if you're doing a one, three, and five year plan, what are the milestones to get there? And are they capable of giving you the growth to do it? Do they have the capacity to put another eight hour shift in place? Things like that, that become more strategic in making a decision. The other thing that I learned is that when you're making product at one manufacturer, same formula, it could even be the same ingredients that you're buying, but you're splitting to two different manufacturers. You have to be very careful that when equipment is different, product tastes different. And so people could say, wait, this isn't the same peanut butter bar that I had over here. This is a different, whether it's a different texture, different size, the wrapper looks different. There is a very difficult growth phase of matching one manufacturer in the East Coast to one in the West Coast, for say, for example. So really watching the way that your expansion works to the quality of your food. So I've listened to a number of podcasts and I actually, the guy that runs US staffing services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him, with one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously, it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I've decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content. Thanks again for that insight. I mean, that makes total sense. It's like if I went to my friend's house and they have a newer oven versus I have one that's 10 or 15 years older, like there might be hot spots that are different. And like you said, just on a small scale, I always try to compare it to something consumer or easy to relate to that. Yeah, you're saying it could come out tasting different, even though you give them the exact same ingredients and everything else. So that's wonderful insight. Well, I appreciate you kind of going through year by year there with Think Thin as well, and then kind of stop that. I guess you started mentoring some young ladies for a few years and then eventually that kind of brought you round circle to Betterland Foods? Yeah, that's what happened. You know, COVID hit and we did as many Zooms as we could with the ladies trying to help them through. You know, these are young entrepreneurs and it was tough. When COVID hit, they didn't know what to do. And so I did a lot of Zooms. I did a lot of education. I tried to do as many one-on-ones, but it was always better to do larger Zooms because at that point you could hit more entrepreneurs. When the PPP loans came out, I had an accountant firm come on and teach them the night before how to fill out the loan paperwork. And a lot of them got loans. So, you know, it was fun. It was warm is what it was. It made you feel good at night when you give back like that. And then I realized that this COVID thing was going to be longer. You mean it was it only 14 days to stop the spread? <laughs> yeah. You know, I knew COVID was going to be bad in January. My kids thought I was a nut. They were like, mom, you are crazy. I said, you're not leaving the house. The world's going to shut down. They're like, what are you talking about? And now when I say something, they listen a little bit more, but I don't know. I knew that this thing was going to be bad. Do you still help those ladies today? I actually had one pull 
fruit that just went on Shark Tank. No, not in the level of what I did. About a year ago, I sent out a note to everybody letting them know that I'm building a business and just was too hard to do both. Yeah, well, it shows that you're learning, right? I mean, it's smart. We can't do everything because the same thing with me, like even with the podcast and whatnot, it's like, I can't just keep doing this forever if it's not going to financially make sense for me. There's some point that you have to make a decision that am I going to keep doing this all time, even though it makes you feel good and you want to help, right? You can't keep doing that, especially and try reaching another goal, which for you is like another business or for me might be the same type of thing. You know, it's, I think it's for, important for us all to prioritize. If you think that you can do it all, then you're just full. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I also think that that attitude gets you to where you're at, right? Eyes wide open. What can you do and not do? Where do you want to focus your time? How do you balance that? And then you can make a decision from there. What works for you? Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. I think you hit all the high and low points. I don't know if there's anything looking back, if there's one last thing you want to leave with entrepreneurs listening now, or if there's one last tidbit for, I guess, anyone in general, if they were starting a business today. Well, you know, I would say that do what you love and it'll pay off and work hard to make a difference in your brand and your pillars of your brand and surround yourself with the best. Because when you surround yourself with the best, it only evolves your everything, your attitude, your mental, your learning. And it also helps you understand what you're really good at and what you're not good at. And you can't be good at everything. So realize that if you're not good at math, get a killer CFO. If you're great at sales, focus on sales and have somebody focus on marketing. Don't feel like you have to do it all because of ego or because of your reputation. Well, again, thanks for coming on. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and say thanks? Oh, that's very kind. So you can go to my Instagram, just Lizanne Falsetto, betterlandfoods.com. We have info at and info at lizannefalsetto.com. Or you go to my LinkedIn page. Lizanne Falsetto. Great. Thanks again for taking the time to share your story and, you know, help everyone who was listening to it today. I hope it helps. Thank you for giving me the platform to do it and for doing what you're doing, because you're only helping and empowering more people by opening up this platform. If you're looking for other female entrepreneurs we've interviewed, then here you go. Episode five with Sarah Shaw of Sarah Shaw Consulting. Episode 12 with Dory Clark of Reinventing You. Episode 15 with Jillian Hellman of Realty Mogul. Episode 33 with Dana Korn Van Noy of Sonic Boom Wellness. Or episode 48 with Siobhan Moran of Energetic Solutions. Guess what I'm going to say next? Please share the podcast. If you want to keep hearing more episodes of Millionaire Interviews, then please take the time to share it with somebody else 